I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it, where you find it, where you find it, love mm -hmm. is where you find it. <clears throat> Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode one of season one on The Interview. Today's episode was originally recorded on May 25th, 2021. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Give Us This Day, Daily Prayer for Today's Catholic, the Institute for Christian Socialism, Building a Movement of the Ecumenical Christian Left, Solidarity Hall, Eden plus Utopia, Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedalboard Solutions, Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for Black Catholics. Where Peter is, there is the church. The Juan Diego Network, Catholic Audio for Latinos, and Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. Today's featured sponsor is Whippenstock Publishers, the publishers of my 2015 book that this podcast takes as its namesake, Folk Phenomenology, Education, Study, and the Human Person. They've also published three other books of mine, A Primer for Philosophy and Education in 2014, and in 2017, my book of essays, Tell Them Something Beautiful, Essays in Ephemera. In 2019, they also published a translation of the 2014 book uh, under the title Una Base para la Filosofía y la Educación, translated by Fernando Murillo. I'm so grateful to count on their support here once again with Folk Phenomenology, the podcast. You can find their links in the show notes, along with links to all of these wonderful and generous sponsors of the show. If you would like to support Folk Phenomenology, please consider sharing this episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and maybe even leave us a review or a rating, and you can also drop a tip in the tip jar. You can find Folk Phenomenology on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and you can also follow it through my own social media accounts on those sites. The motto of folk phenomenology is Dilexit Mundum. It means love of the world or to love the world. I've taken it out of a very particular place in history, the late 4th century in Jerome's Vulgate, the translation of Christian scripture into Latin. It's taken specifically from the Gospel of John of the Christian New Testament, chapter 3, verse 16, the famous John 3.16, which in Latin reads, Seek Deus dilexit mundum, for God so loved the world. From that I've extracted the motto, dilexit mundum, to primarily focus on this kind of love of the world, this kind of amor mundi, we might say in Latin, that specifically calls itself dilexit mundum, to delight in the world, to find the world delectable, to delect that type of love. I believe that type of love was easy to show last week with my daughter Sophia because of so many things, but perhaps above all, her voice. There was a delight there that was present. In this episode, I don't have Sophia by my side, and I am actually not in conversation with anyone, which is not the norm for the show. But what I want to do today as we begin is to try to supply some of my reasons for not only this motto, but for the show itself, and hopefully allow myself to explain a bit, at least of what my motivations are, and my sense of delight that I take in this show and more particularly in this medium of the interview. So I hope you enjoy it. 
one of the things that the interview does is it allows one to begin. You can just enter into an interview on the very basic conditions of the human encounter. What I mean here is that, you know, it's sort of awkward to log into Zoom and let someone into the Zoom call and then sit there and not say anything. You have to say something. And after you say something, they inevitably have to respond. And at some point you press record and, and there you go. And I think that's true of any interview is that the encounter itself forces in some sense a kind of beginning and a kind of uh, uh, opening. W without that, uh, without those conditions and without that, you know, force, uh, I find beginning almost impossible. I find it very difficult to know when to start, how to start, why. I often want to talk about starting in a way, in the way I'm doing now. And to be honest, in some cases it's because I don't want to start yet, so I'm, I'm, I'm stalling. But in other cases it's because I don't want to start the wrong way. I don't want to start uh, in a careless way. I, I, I don't want to, it's not that I'm afraid to start, it's simply the fact that I, I Maybe I am afraid, but I'm afraid of of, of starting off wrong. I'm, I'm afraid in a qualitative sense. It's not the start itself that scares me. It's the the wrong start or the the start that that misses uh, a kind of a thing, um, a false start, I guess. And the interview, I think, is a device of uh, uh, that that promotes and allows for something like an easy beginning um, in most cases it's hi welcome to my show um, <laughs> and and those first that first word that salutation those first phrases and clauses in the beginning you know, uh, they do a lot to kind of get the ball rolling, to get the amp warmed up, so to speak. And so that's a very preliminary and first sense of what I think about when I think of the interview. I had initially at one point thought of this podcast really being something like a, um, me, a mere project to a lot of the lectures that I record for, for my courses at the University of British Columbia, where I, well, I just talk <laughs> about um, a text or a set of ideas or a set of themes related to a text or a set of ideas that we're studying, and, and I do them for a class, and um, it's a lecture, right? And um, for, for I've recorded my lectures for some time, mainly because people alerted me that I talked too fast and they wanted a chance to uh, to be able to slow me down dig digitally or at least through repetition. And, um, you know, I started doing that a few years ago. And so my initial intuition was that this podcast would essentially just be a place where I would uh, offer popular lectures on a series of subjects and themes and so on and so forth. Um, Thankfully, that's not what this podcast is, and the real heart and core of this season of 20 episodes, 21 if we include the zero episode that aired last week, 22 if you include the trailer, um, whatever, this, this, this particular iteration of folk phenomenology, its real center is uh, a dozen interviews that uh, that that I did with a, I believe a a, a sense of uh, of intention behind 
having a, a certain kind of interview and a certain kind of conversation, um, not only from the perspective of the way in which I conducted the interviews, but also in terms of the kinds of people that I wanted to talk to and the reasons why I wanted to talk about the things I wanted to talk about. And, and not only the things I wanted to talk about, but the trust I had and the, and the true excitement I had to, uh, to encounter these, these particular people. And, and they all really delivered. Um, in fact, they over delivered. Um, in many cases, I, I had no idea, uh, or, or I just had some intuitions, but they were not borne out until I really got to have those conversations through those interviews. And so there are a few different parts of this podcast, including this part here, which is not an interview. And there will be four of these. Uh, there are also some different kinds of conversations that I wouldn't call interviews in the wide sense. I'd call them more like critical conversations. Um, in fact, I, I, I will frame them as debates. Um, and I have different reasons and different experiences that, that justify those uh, portions. And that also justify portions like this where I am doing the kind of uh, lecture, monologue, sort of presentation. I want to spend some time thinking about the interview in a few different ways through a few more concrete examples that relate to my own experience, but that I hope might bring us to some understanding of some larger, more general characteristics of the interview. So that going into these interviews, there is some, perhaps, uh, there, there are some cards on the table that you can take into them uh, if you want to treat them as a series of even potentially uh, forms of evidence that, uh, well, that either cohere or don't, that uh, follow or don't uh, this particular presentation of the interview. Now, why would anybody want to do that? It might seem like an awful lot of work. Why not just listen to them and why not just get on with it and just get started? I think that's reasonable. Um, I think the the interviews and I think the interview itself is, is by no means um, obvious just because it's easy and because it's accessible. Um, I think there's something that we can miss whenever we allow things that kind of come easily or are entertaining in that way that entertainment sort of uh, makes access easy and even kind of holds on to us in a way. Um, I, I think that, that, uh, that that's great, you know, and, and look, I think there's entertainment value in a lot of this. Um, but I don't understand this as, as entertainment, and I'm not particularly motivated by a concern for entertainment. Um, I think there's room for fun. I, I hope there's room for joy. I hope there's room for uh, all kinds of things. But ultimately... Um, I believe that this center, this core, this heart of the podcast, or at least of this season of the podcast, in these interviews, um, deserves to be, at the very least, tested. Um, that claim, these are the core of the podcast, that claim deserves, I think, to be submitted to the scrutiny of, uh, of a preamble of sorts, of, of an attempt by uh, myself as the producer, author, curator, interviewer, um, to tell you a little bit about my relationship to the interview and to work from those stories and those examples to those more general uh, ideas. And then, of course, um, move on as the season allows and uh, and present them to you um, one by one and and allow you to see what you what you think allow me in fact to uh 
to see what I think about them in, in that respect. To think and to consider and to pause and to begin in this rather ponderous way. These are important characteristics, I hope, for the approach that I want to take here. And it's very closely aligned to and related with that word phenomenology and that whole word folk phenomenology. Um, I'm not going to try to to always become pedantic about this, and I promise that I won't, you know, plug my book every two seconds. But you know, this isn't just the title of a of a podcast. It's it's a it's been something of a of a life's work in the sense that you know. The book that came out in 2015, published by Whip and Stock, titled Folk Phenomenology, Education Study in the Human Person, that was a six-year revision of my doctoral dissertation, which was in some sense, well, I mean, as all dissertations are, at least, you know, the kind of uh, um, the terminal project for for my doctoral studies which was really in some sense my the terminal project for my terminal degree in my study of, of philosophy and philosophy of education so you know um it matters to me that there's some attention paid to these methodological steps and to the ability to suspend a bit the ordinary or easy or everyday basic public interest level concern for these discussions because I think they have, in fact, they, they shocked me at all having, I think, just real compelling content. But I think there's even more than just that. I think that there's something that even transcends that there. And I wonder whether that may have something to do with the form of the interview uh, itself. And so in this episode, what I would like to do is to try to take that up and, and uh, using the steps, examples first, and then some uh, general characteristics that I've proposed. The first example is the interview that I uh, participated in in episode zero, where my daughter, Sophia, interviewed me. Um, the long story behind how that episode came to be and how that interview um, was suggested and, and took place uh, carries us into uh, a walk in the forest as we were going to gather field recordings uh, that I'm using in the kind of sonic soundscape for for the show and in uh, a series of I thought sensible questions that uh, Sophia had to ask about those recordings and the show and what is the show and what the recordings for and so on and so forth you know it was, um, it gave me the idea to have her interview me. And her as an interviewer really struck me because there was something, she prepared like written questions and um, she asked them in a way that was almost, I felt like, like once she had asked the question, she was ready to ask the next question just as soon as I finished giving my answer. And I found that actually kind of unnerving because, you know, there wasn't going to be an opportunity to extend or to, you know, um, develop my ideas. I had to give her direct answers and I'm not very good at that. And I would try sometimes to maybe ask her questions about the questions and, and so on and so forth. But in the end, you know, I, I was unable to uh, escape um, 
her her rigor as an interviewer and as a result and she also asked questions that i suspect she didn't quite realize were um not only difficult but even in some ways um uh impossible to answer or that kind of plumbed some depths that i don't think she was entirely aware of or was aware of at all but that kind of knocked me back and anyway that that first interview which is my first example which you can listen to which is you know already like a preface or forward or prequel or pre-season episode of this show um it kind of it's an inversion of my role and and it kind of flipped i think in many ways the uh the show around before it even began and here i am in some ways trying to flip it back around in order to get us to the first interview with Jeannie Gafkin that's coming next week um so that's the first example of of the interview um in my experience the second example is uh, a, a a literary interview that um took place takes place and, and has taken place for for many many years in a uh, quarterly that i subscribe to called paris review um i'm just a fanatic for paris review and the reason for my fanaticism is 95 percent um because of the uh the interviews on writing and the author interviews that they've been conducting for many many decades when i first came the first interview i came across this was just happenstance i don't remember exactly why or, or what reason i had for finding it was the the interview with woody allen um that being the first interview has definitely not aged well uh but it, but it's what it was and there was one thing that stuck out stuck out to me in that interview which was him saying that he takes every offer he gets to do um some writing because he's certain that he won't get asked again so he kind of does it in some ways he's playing i guess maybe that kind of paranoid uh neurotic character uh and maybe that's not just a character who knows um at some level i think we're all just playing a character but that really struck me at the time uh i had a similar feeling of uh almost you know desperation about you know having to say yes to everything and take everything i think at the time i was you know um yeah in the early part of my academic career and on an academic job market that was you know brutal so um so that stood out about Woody Allen but m- more than that the style of writing the way the interviewer and in, and in those uh interviews kind of disappears and becomes anonymous the opening short little um descriptive statement about the interview and about the person being interviewed the photography the uh yeah everything about it i mean some of my real favorites are the interview with Ralph Ellison uh the interview with Mary Carr uh, the interview with Maya Angelou um the interview with Elena Poniatowska uh the Mexican journalist the the interview with Richard Peviar and Larissa Volonkowski the translators uh, the uh, Russian to English translators Tolstoy Chekhov um yeah that 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 literary presentation of the interview really affected me deeply and and to this day you know I'm a subscriber and I I and this is Paris Review is I would love them to be sponsors someday but they're not you know this is not a a plug or anything um you know I I uh I really cherish the the hard copies I get and and I've even had a few the last few issues that have come with three interviews and that's great um it really it really struck me that that they all asked the same question which is basically how do you write and um and they have different series the art of poetry the art of fiction the art of screenwriting i mean i'm you know um 
and so that that um that concern with writing and with composition and with the craft of, of being a writer uh, it's been something that I've always felt a need to uh, improve upon and to hold myself to a higher standard too but I haven't always had the tools and these interviews to me are kind of like a raw material because you get to just hear authors across many genres respond to that question how do I write and some of them tell you I use a pencil or I use a typewriter or I write in the morning or I uh, don't write but some of them also talk about um, you know philosophical issues like what is writing or who am I or um, you know uh, reflect on particular works that they wrote and said well I wrote that differently than I wrote something else and you know and, and there's there's so much variety across these uh, these interviews and, and that to me has been um, a constant uh, companion in, in my thinking about the interview and uh, I'll bring it up again in the, the an example after this next one um, so the first example was Sophia as an interviewer who interviewed me for episode zero and kind of <laughs> uh, inverted kind of the whole uh, the whole show to, to start off. The second example is Paris Review. And the third example is a local. So I, uh, I live in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. It's not where I'm originally from. Uh, I was born in Texas and mostly raised uh, along the... The, the border and, and in the hill country um, but honestly it was kind of all over the place and uh, spent my you know young adulthood into into adulthood in the Midwest and now find myself in, in Canada um, there's a local um, interviewer here who long before I came here I've, I've admired a great deal and who I think is just, um, you know, if Paris Review is the kind of the virtuosos of the literary interview, uh, Nar this guy, Nardwar, the human serviette, he is to me the, the virtuoso of the, I would say of like the live and vivo um, interview. And definitely, I would say, within the kind of uh, hip-hop culture, uh, music journalism, that kind of thing, you know, I think Nardwar's, you know, he's, he's, he sets, he raises the bar so high that I don't think there's anybody even interested in trying to um, compete with what he does. Uh, if you're familiar with Nardwar, you're probably smiling right now, and um, I hope you're agreeing with me. <laughs> My guess is a lot of you probably haven't heard of Nardwar, so I'll tell you a few things about Nardwar. Um, he's a, a local guy here. He's really proud of where he's from. Uh, he always represents, you know, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, wherever he is. He um, His interview style is highly idiosyncratic, the way he dresses wears like this Scottish kind of golf hat looking thing, sometimes vests. He ends his interviews in a very um, awkward way by like freezing and not moving like into like the painfully awkward um, zone of, of time. He, uh, he does incredible amounts of research on everyone who he interviews uh, which are mostly rappers and MCs and you know hip hop artists, um, with 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 some exceptions. You know Daniel Johnson. He interviews Daniel Johnson while he was still alive in a in a record shop. Um, and part of that research is that he acquires um, gifts, often gifts, that he uh, presents to the people he's talking to as like cues and and really as kind of like hard evidence to show that the thing he's asking them about that he knows what it is and he has it in his hand so oftentimes these are mixtapes or really early albums or vhs um recordings and stuff and you know he i think he got his big break by uh an initial interview he did with snoop dogg 
And he's now done, I think, three or four of those. Um, but he's also taken some really wild chances, uh, you know, sneaking into, you know, getting, getting, you know, very limited access to, uh, to MCs and rappers. And in other cases, he's got his reputation has allowed him to, to interview people, you know, who know a lot about music and stuff and who are kind of, uh, I would say a challenge, you know, he, he interviews Questlove, for instance, Amir Thompson. And that's a, that's an awesome one. But he, he, to me, is kind of like, yeah, the, I would say he's the gold standard in kind of live interviews. Um, he has questions, though. Oftentimes, they're on cards pre-written. They come with prepped uh, gifts that he hands to them in their hand. Um, from an audio perspective, I don't know how he pulls it off. He's usually got a handheld uh, microphone that he's you know using and passing along. Um, and so I know that, you know, usually that means he's got to have somebody on the other end, you know, recording and, and capturing all that audio. Um, but yeah, I mean, the presentation is, is, is very, uh, I don't know if you call it avant-garde or, or what, yet the, the rigor of the preparation and of the props and of everything to me is just mind blowing. I mean, I just think that, uh, uh, yeah, I just really think that he, uh, like I said, he's, he's raised the bar so high that, you know, I don't think anyone, certainly not me, could, could aspire to, to beat him at his own game. It's a little bit of a tangent, but something I wanted to get in, especially on this episode, is that uh, Nardwar's, Nardwar's approach is, to me, just like, like if I had a criticism, it's that it's it's super serious to me. I mean, again, it, it's it's cloaked in silliness and in uh, awkwardness and taking advantage of, of, of in some in some sense catching people completely off guard. This you know white Canadian punk rocker um, nerdy presenting guy uh, shows up and knows more about not just hip-hop but about you an MC in your career and your life than all of the people standing around you and you know stuff that like only my mother knows that or only my sister and by the way I have no idea where he gets his information or how he gets his information I mean it verges on almost magic but I know obviously it's just it's preparation of a certain kind you know um, but the production level and stuff, his intro track, his, 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 you know, caricatured graphic, graphics of himself, you know, I just, you know, and he's been doing this, I think, long before, you know, the kind of content creation that's exploded now is happening. So much respect to Nardwar and a tangent of a head nod to David King and his show Rational Funk. Um... That's a very different show. It's not interview-based at all. It's very much monologues by Dave King. Uh, probably most famous as being the drummer in The Bad Plus, but also the, the drummer in Happy Apple and Dave King's Trucking Company and Shovel and, a, and a, I'm sure many other things. Recently um, hired by Julian Lodge uh, for his trio project. You know, just incredible, you know, stuff. Um, Rational Funk, I think, is in its second season right now. Its first season was like 50 or 60 episodes, you know. And um, it's really like a TV show, and it's absurd and avant-garde. And it's supposed to be like a drum instruction uh, tutorial show. And it is that, <laughs> but not in any of... Not in any ways I think we would expect. And, you know, again, there are a lot of differences between Dave King and Nardwar, but I, I think there's a, um, a certain common spirit between the two. Uh, of course, in, in, in Dave's case, you know, his world is really jazz. Um, and that's where I think he excels in satirizing other genres from a perspective of a jazz drummer, satirizing that, that really bad movie about jazz drumming I'm not going to remember what it's called. Anyway, um, but in terms of the interview, um, Nardwar to me is, is right up there with Paris Review. Um, 
the third example uh, I wanted to offer following from, you know, Sophia's interview from last week, uh, the literary interviews of Paris Review and Nardwar's, you know, hip hop, uh, music, journalism interviews with a uh, tip of the hat to Dave King and Rational Funk. This show actually aspired to become or to be a kind of spinoff of Rational Funk. And I wasn't even like, I can't pull off Nardwar. I thought I could kind of maybe pull off Rational Funk but until I realized that I just wasn't able to do the video end of the production and uh and so i gave up and i and i chose to embrace the kind of sonic only podcast uh environment but you know that gives you a sense of you know the influences here and some of the things i had in mind um the fourth example is really uh my attempt to present a kind of copycat of the Paris Review interviews with my own spins. Uh, maybe with my own spins, you might say, coming more out of the school of Nardwar or Dave King. Um, but anyhow, I, I was a, a writer at Pathios and the Catholic Channel um, for several years. And then later on, uh, after I kind of closed my blog, came back as a channel editor for a few years as well and um, you know there was the usual thing where you know division and fighting and ideological warfare and so on and so forth and you know one thing about Paris Review and those interviews is that um, you know writers are, are uh, coming artists you know are, are coming a lot of different <laughs> shapes and sizes and, and politics and whatnot. And and uh, the question, how do you write, in some sense, was able to kind of pierce through or transcend in a way that, and it didn't prevent people, didn't prevent people with, you know, really strong political um, formations and ideas and senses of their writing as political uh, to, from talking, nor did it prevent others who saw it differently from talking. It was a it was and is a space that was, you know, like you don't read literary criticism, uh, even reviews or anything like that in Paris Review. It's all art, uh, with maybe the exception of the ads. But even those are kind of often, I find them, you know, well done from like at least a design perspective. Um, but the Paris Review approach struck me at the time as maybe a way to uh, to mediate a bit the uh, the culture wars I guess you could say I think at that time this is a very different time for me um, I had a different sense of myself in relation to all that maybe I was fooling myself then who knows but uh, I thought I would start a series called the art of blogging where I would interview bloggers about how do you write. Um, and um, you know, I interviewed Max Lindenman, uh, Leo Labresco, uh, I think I did like five interviews. Um, those are the two that stand out to me, I suppose. I think it was the first one and the last one, actually. Maybe that's why. My... And I, and I laid them out even as like a copycat of Paris Review. I wrote the little introduction. I had these like centered, all caps, small caps, interviewer, and then the name of the person I was interviewing. So they were pretty like standard ripoffs of Paris Review. Um, but at one point in any interview, I would play this game of um, free association where I would give free association cues. So it's kind of psychoanalytic. Uh, game and and I found that very interesting actually as an interviewer and as a reader I, I doubt that always communicated and and like I said it was a short-lived project it only lasted five interviews but it was my well I think it matters because you know those were interviews that I conducted and that I uh, edited and, and you know presented and, and so on and so forth I uh, 
I have to say that like one other thing about this is that, you know, in my academic work, I'm a philosopher and I work though in a faculty of education and in a field of education where a lot of people do, you know, qualitative research where the, you know, the core data that is collected is collected through interviews. Um, and I'm, I'm a fairly outspoken critic of a lot of that work. And I, and I don't do it. Like, it's not it's not my approach uh, to my work. And so, um, and so yeah, the, the idea of the interview being important to me is in some sense kind of funny, but as I thought about it, you know, I did do that with Pathios. I've done a few other interviews, too. I interviewed Eddie Bayard uh, at the uh, Malcolm X Institute for Black Studies. Um, and uh, I even transcribed part of that interview for an article I was I was writing at one point and stuff. So, you know, I say that I'm not doing interview-based work, but in truth, I don't know how reliable or true that is. But nonetheless, I do have a kind of tense relationship to it. Um, and really, this show is, for me at least, the um, uh, the most the most committed I've felt to that particular genre, to that particular mode of expression to that particular uh, form. But it wouldn't have come to be just because I did those five short-lived interviews at Pathios. I don't think it would have come to be because of my uh, great respect and admiration for Nardwar, the human serviette. I don't believe it would have been... Yeah, I don't think we'd be here now just because I love Paris Review uh, and read about it. And the, the interview, the singular, you could say, interview that truly showed me um, that maybe I could do something as an interviewer. That 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 that, that interview was a, was a real um, was within my grasp to to execute. Was the interview I did last summer with Gloria Purvis that came out under the title, um, The Gift of Blackness to the Church. And the, you know, the the lead up to how that interview took place, the aftermath of the transcription of our conversation and the editing of that conversation into a kind of tighter, um, more essayistic uh, presentation, its publication and Church Life Journal, uh, with huge thanks to Arthur Rossman, uh, who's been with me since Pathios and, and whose idea the whole interview was, in fact, um, to its reception and 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 really, in some sense, the aftermath of that. Its relation, of course, to to the times and to you know the killing of George Floyd, the um, the suspension of, of her own uh, show that was at the time and on EWTN by one of the affiliate networks that would later become uh, just a, uh, the loss of that show entirely but um, because EWTN didn't renew it to her, her return and her own podcast uh, with America which I encourage everyone to listen to um it's one of the, the great friends of this show. It's more than a friend, though, because, you know, without Gloria, without that interview, um, I don't think that all of the other uh, examples that I've offered would have necessarily given me the confidence, but also the sense of um, the, the sense that there was maybe something distinct or unique about the approach that I might take to the interview. Because I think one thing about the interview is that it's 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 it has a general form, but it's but one of its general forms is the particulars of the person doing the interview and the the choices they make and the consistency that they apply uh, in and out of um, you know of, of of each iteration of that, so on and so forth, and you know. That is one thing that I think Nardwar and Dave King have in common is, you know, this kind of commitment to a kind of not being afraid to, you know, 
to hit that chorus again and again and again, so to speak. Um, and that you see in Paris Review and they're, you know, I think they've had the same exact layout and typesetting style, you know, from the, from the forties, uh, to the present. And, uh, yeah, doing that interview with Gloria showed me that, that, you know, maybe you have a voice here. Maybe you have a, uh, something you can offer, um, that's not only derivative, because I think, by the way, derivatives are great. <laughs> I think, I think we should have more. Um, but but that's not only derivative of the things you admire. And you know, in many ways, um, th the best decision about that interview was who I chose to interview was Gloria, who I didn't know at the time. Is our very first time speaking to each other, you know, mediated by Zoom. Um, I was very concerned that she might not, you know, that, that I that that I didn't want to give the impression that I was, you know, trying to uh, to to use her uh, as a kind of boost to my own uh, ego or platform or any of those things. Um, and, and I was, of course, also concerned about the subject matter and my ability to, uh, to converse in a way that was appropriate, you know, to that. We were talking about, you know, anti-black white supremacy. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, it was, it was a wonderful conversation. It went on much longer than I had expected. And it was the seed, really, for um, for this podcast in, in, in many, in many, many ways. Um, it also happened at a very interesting time in that I had just come off of a um, a debate I did with Trent Horn at Catholic Answers, and there was a lot of podcasters reaching out to me about guesting on their podcast to talk a bit more about that in the midst of the turmoil of, of last summer and of the tragedy of the killing of Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, you know, Black Lives Matter. And, uh, and so I found myself kind of, you know, doing a bit of a, like a podcast COVID. Oh my gosh. You know, there's just so much going on, but doing a kind of tour of sorts across all these podcasts to talk ostensibly about the debate, but found myself talking a lot about race in the church and, 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 and in the United States of America and in the Americas in general. Um, and that interview um, was, uh, was probably, I think, the, the most important um, piece of work that that I that I had any 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 role in that came out that that summer, um, and because of it, the lingering idea I had had to have to be to have a kind of David King uh, rational funk style show, possibly even taking the the exact same shtick, you know, like a instructional video series on guitar or something like that that would open up into everything and everything everything and anything that I'm interested in or, or passionate about under a kind of veneer of wit and a kind of irony or whatever you know um, yeah I soon realized that that that, that wasn't going to work both from a both from the perspective of uh, the technical requirements of video and video editing and video creation and space to do that and so on. And also from the perspective though of the kind of the kind of form that I wanted to have at the center of it, which was no longer my self uh, and was more this interview form, um, which you know shifted the show from a uh, rational funk with David King kind of uh, inspiration to more of a Nardwar, the human serviette kind of inspiration. And, uh, and here we are, and here we are.
Um, and so what can we take away from that? Um, what can we say about the interview in general? Uh, what, what form of reduction can we, can we perform here across these examples? One being last week's episode with my daughter who interviewed me and kind of flipped the script and the second being Paris Review and the third being Nardwar and the fourth being Pathios, which is really just an imitation of Paris Review and, and the fifth being the, uh, the Gift of Blackness of the Church, the interview with, with Gloria Purvis. Um, with that very f- firm and respectful nod to, to Dave King and his show, and its place and displacement in a way, in this way of thinking. And, and what can I say also about the interviews that are to come and, and to prime a bit our, our minds, our hearts to, to what that might be like and, and what that might share in these examples I've given. Um, I don't want to say too much I think it's important for you to make those associations and connections for yourself, but in the same way that the interview at the very, very beginning is a, a form that kind of substitutes for a beginning. It's a form that forces a beginning, that forces a hello, how are you? Thank you for coming to my show. Thanks for having me. That kind of gets you into things, you know, pushes you there. It, it gets you into those things because I think the, the fundamental structure of the interview is really just the, um, the call and the response. So you, you encounter another person and in that encounter, one of you calls and the other one responds. And off you go, you know. But this sense of calling and responding, the sense of responsibility, the ability to respond to the call, um, I think that's the that's the basic grammar of of the interview except that at least in English the word interview in Spanish it's entrevista so it's about the same it works on a different metaphor it works on a metaphor of sight of the eyes of the view whereas the call and the response is, is a set of words that play on the kind of metaphor of voice and of the ear and of sound and I think here we have to try to take the full poetic impact of both of those sensorial things and we can also add it to, to all the other ways of sensing we, ha- we have the hand um, what I mean to say is that the interview is, is an opportunity to, to see to view, to review but it's also to see between Inter between persons, but not just on a, like an exchange, like a ping pong ball. But, you know, what's what's between the two walls that that ball is bouncing off of? Um, what is that middle space? What is that? I think that's what the interview is about, and, and I think that the interview invites a lot of company. In other words, I don't see an interview as always necessarily being a matter of, you know, person A speaking to person B. It's not just a communicative, you know, diagram. I think it gets flooded with other people. I mean, look at this one. We've, you know, my daughter's here, all these writers at Paris Review and typesetters and authors and Nardwar, the human serviette is here and Dave King is here and Gloria Purvis is here and Pathios and, you know, Elizabeth Scalia, who was the, the, the editor who brought me in there at the time. And, you know, I mean, the interview, I think, is, is an invitation to to see not only the other person, but to see the, the kind of, I'm going to use a religious expression here, kind of like the 
a secular community of saints, uh, uh, all the choirs and angels, like this, you know, these kind of flooded scenes where we can seem to think that we're encountering just two people, but I think what we realize is that the intimacy of that encounter doesn't preclude uh, a, a, a very um, public, in a way, and a very communal and a very social uh, event or phenomenon. It's an appearance or a phenomenon of a kind of folk. It's folk phenomenology. That's what the interview is. I, I, I think, I believe, I hope. And these examples I've given from the relationship between a father and a daughter, with the daughter taking the place of the father and the position of the interviewer, and the father taking the place of the interviewee to the intricacies of the literary relations between writers and and their mediums and their lives and their lovers and their you know their critics and yeah so many things and you know Nardwar's relationship to hip hop and as a punk Canadian artist and uh, punk rock, I mean there. I don't mean I don't mean like I'm not calling him a punk. Um, Dave King, I mean just constantly a barrage of <laughs> references and allusions and uh, yeah, to the Catholic media world, which might look difficult today, but you know, it's never been simple. Not at least since I've been around in it, since around 2005, 2006, 2007. To the, uh, to the very real and uh, relationship that began in an interview between myself and Gloria and that has grown and and you know now you know she's got a podcast and i I have a podcast and um yeah folk phenomenology it's it's a lot of folks appearing in a lot of ways through this form of of the interview in fact one way to think of the folk comes from an interview with Louis Armstrong where he's asked um, what kind of music do you play and he says I play folk music and the journalist asks well what do you mean by that and he says well I play music for folks in the episode uh, with uh, Jaya she talks about a different version of that story that she's heard and we uh, compare our two different versions of that account of that interview but um that's those are some that those are some characteristics perhaps of, of the interview, some aspects of the form of the interview, the call and the response, the poetics of vision, the sociality and um the um the public nature. Of, of, of the interview. Uh, these are all things to perhaps keep in mind, uh, not just about the interviews to follow in the show, but also about maybe um, ways in which the form of the interviews enters into uh, our common experience of things like dialogue or conversation or um, yeah, our everyday lives and, and, and also the ways in which those inter- that sense of the interview pierces into some of the other portions of, of the podcast, um, including, I think, the, the auto-interview that I hope, at least, um, 
has some place within even the monologue or the lecture where I'm not only speaking from some authorial authority, some, you know, strong place, I guess. But in some sense, I'm also trying to look inside myself and between my inside and my outside, trying to imagine you, the listener and the audience and what might be between us and 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 taking taking an interview approach uh, uh, to, to doing this as well. So this isn't just a way to try to maybe capture or summarize the interviews that I've said and I still believe are the heart of this podcast, but maybe it's also a way to capture something that might be important or significant about all the other parts and, and about maybe uh, our, our life in general and maybe perhaps some part of this folklore that we uh, that we're all living in together and and apart so that's the interview Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 1. I would like to again thank all my sponsors. Our featured sponsor of the day, Stock Publishers, also Give Us This Day, the Institute for Christian Socialism, Solidarity Hall, Revelation Cable Company, Black Catholic Messenger, Where Peter Is, The Juan Diego Network, and Commonweal Magazine. The friends of the show are the Commonweal Podcast, the Gloria Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Gosley, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Cush Classics. The show is a work of conviviality and solidarity and friendship, and it would not happen without the sponsors and the friends Uh, the ones named here, but also so many others that I could name. I hope you'll go to the show notes and find links to all these wonderful friends and all these wonderful sponsors. You'll also find a tip jar if you'd like to contribute, uh, and all of those tips will be set aside for the fundraising efforts for Season 2, which I hope to uh, get started on just as soon as Season 1 is over. Once again, please share this episode and subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform. Find us on social media accounts and, uh, and make sure to tell your friends. Next week, the show really takes off with the interview that I did just before Holy Week this last year with Jeannie Gaffigan. The interview is wide-ranging and it covers a, a lot of territory including her autobiographical book but it really kind of hit its theme or its motif whenever we started to discuss the confluence of the tragic and the comic of human suffering and of things that in any number of ways are not funny and humor and the comic, including the comedy of uh, Jeannie and Jim Gaffigan. Last week, Jeannie was the special sponsor on behalf of the Imagine Society of the episode with Sophia. And I want to let you know a little bit more about what that was all about. You see, these sponsors uh, gave me the ability to offer a, a modest honorarium to each of my guests uh, as a token of thanks for their time and for their voice. And whenever I approached Jeannie to offer her this honorarium, she immediately declined saying she had done it out of her own free will and with no expectation of any kind of compensation. And I insisted and we went back and forth a little bit Um, until finally we arrived at a compromise where she chose to uh, re-donate 
her honorarium to the show, earmarked for an omission, actually, in my own planning, where I had allocated these honoraria for the various guests, but I had not actually set aside uh, any funds for my daughter, Sophia, and her guest hosting in the episode of last week. And so because of Jeannie's generosity and because of her ingenuity, we came to this wonderful compromise. And Sophia got a new bicycle, which just coincidentally uh, she had uh, needed because she blew out the exterior part of her tire of her old bicycle, which she had also by, um, by now outgrown. So it all worked out. And um, I just cannot wait to share that interview with Jeannie and to continue to share with you the wonderful relationship and friendship that she and I have been able to uh, to form really over this past year uh, that's extending all the way into my family and in particular uh, my daughter uh, Sophia and her own presence on this show from last week. So please listen to last week's episode uh, if you haven't gotten to that one yet with Sophia. Don't miss that one. And look forward to next week's episode with Jeannie Gaffigan. It kickstarts a long run of interviews that I've hopefully in this episode been able to, to give you some sense of my approach and also my esteem for, uh, for this aspect of the show. Folk Phenomenology is written, hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Sam Rocha. If you want to find out more about me and my work, you can go to my website, samrocha.com. Well, you know the motto, so go out and love the world. Dilexit mundum. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting out of the word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. Through the eyes of our ears, we see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.